There are two certain things in life that everyone will eventually face. The one is death, and the other is taxes. And I apologize up front. To, it's kind of like piling on to be mentioning taxes on daylight savings morning when you have to set the time ahead. It just feels like, okay, why don't you just keep loading on additional bad news? Why don't you keep telling us other things that are going wrong? feels like I'm kind of piling on, and I, I apologize for that. But here's the thought about that. The idea that those two things are certain in life, death and taxes, are interesting. But I'm not sure, personally, that those are the only two things that are certain in life. I think there's actually four certain things about life. Four things that we can be certain about at life. First of all, death. Unless Jesus is to return during our lifetime, everyone dies. And everyone will eventually pay taxes, whether it's to this country or to another country, wherever they live around the world, there's no escaping either of those two things. But there's, I think there's more than two. I think there's four things that are ab- we can be absolutely certain about in life. And I want to talk about them today. The, the third one, I think, is pain. I think pain is a certain thing that you will face in life. Let's think about it, right? As you are born, what happens to you? As you are born, someone takes you, turns you upside down, and slaps your backside. And you start to cry, and they tell you that's good for you. Well, welcome to the world. (laughs) Immediately, you are dealing with pain. I remember the first time I really remember experiencing excruciating pain. We had, uh, was growing up in, in Canada, of course, in northern Ontario, and uh, we went and visited a friend's house, and our families were getting together, and the kids said, let's go tobogganing. Great idea, because they had a perfect front yard for tobogganing. You see, they lived on a hill, and their house was kind of level inside the hill, but the hill went up like this, and their yard was uh, a, a, a drop a, a great sledding hill, then the driveway, and then another drop down to a fence line, which made tobogganing as a kid something that I really loved. Their yard was perfect for it because when you hit that driveway, if you had enough speed, your toboggan would go airborne as it went over the next uh, uh, downward slope. It was amazing. And then, of course, you know, you had this dangerous spot where how much time do you have before you have to bail out, before you end up plastered all over the chain link fence. You know, you didn't want to have that happen. So it was, it was full of danger, it was full of excitement, and it was fun. Well, we got one of those really long, narrow wooden toboggans. Do you remember those? Do you have one of those? Like this isn't one of those ones where you put like just one person on. This is where you put, especially when you're little kids, you put like three or four or five kids on. Well, we all had our snow pants and coats on, so we got three kids on there. I think I was, I don't remember what position I was in. I might have been at the end. And we went down the hill and we started to pick up speed because we had three kids on this toboggan and we were moving and we hit that driveway and it had just been a fresh coated uh, fresh coat of snow that had just fallen so we maybe had a half an inch to an inch of powder Uh, it had just been very very nice and you know how it is uh, growing up in Rochester sometimes if it snows and the winter's cold enough you just don't get the snow off your driveway you just pack it down really really hard 
Uh, that's what this driveway was like, and so we hit that, and we didn't slow down because we weren't on pavement. This was not clear. We continued to build up speed and get faster and faster and faster, and we hit the edge of that driveway and started to go down the second slope, and I swear we were flying. In my head, I could hear the Superman theme song in my head. It was great! But the person in the front, I'm not going to blame anyone specifically, but the person in the front started to turn the sled. Just with their body weight, because there were three of us that were in the air, something shifted, something moved, and I think the person in the front started to shift. And, and our sled, our toboggan, started to rotate. And what I didn't know was that underneath this fresh powder that had just fallen the night before was about an inch and a half of ice. Which is what makes the tobogganing really, really good if you're in constant contact with it the whole time. But if you're landing on it, well, that gets a little painful. We rotated enough that all of us fell off the sled and I landed on my shoulder and broke my collarbone. And I didn't know what I had done. I just knew I was in excruciating pain and uh, my sister was there tobogganing and she, of course, saw that I'd gone all pale and, and so on, like what happens when you kind of your body goes into shock. She immediately realized something was wrong, got my mom, and we went off to the hospital. I'm told that I was just in agony the whole time. And then the doctor said, all right, well, we need to get your shirt off to really check this, so I'm just going to raise your arm here. And I kicked him in the face. I don't remember that, and if I did do that, and the doctor's still alive, can I just apologize? They ended up cutting off my shirt, and I just remember the next four to eight weeks being all bandaged up, not being able to sleep very well, having to sleep on a, on a, a low surface in case I rolled and fell off out of bed, all that kind of stuff as a kid. It was, it was awful. It doesn't take very long for any of us to experience pain that limits us in some way in life. For some of us, it's physical. For some of us, it's emotional. For some of us, it's relational. But that's just three things that are certain in life. I also know there's a fourth thing that I'm certain of in life that I am absolutely convinced of that is true of life, and that is this. The thing I'm most certain about in life, this fourth thing, I think it's actually the first thing that can change the way you look at the way you live. And it can change the way you look at how you lived. The thing I'm most certain about in life is that God has a plan. The thing I'm most certain about in life is that not only is there a God, everyone says that there's some form of God, uh, everyone says that there's some form of ultimate answer to everything, how far they take that is really up to them, but Christians say that there is a God, and not only that, that He is actively doing something, that He has a plan, and there's a sub-point in that. That I am absolutely certain of. This first thing that I'm certain of with all of the fiber of my being is this. Is that you and I are never, are never beyond God's plan. God has a plan. 
And the way that that works in the world is that you and I are never beyond it. We're never so far gone that God can say, well, that's outside of what I want to do. We are one step, one decision of saying, I want to be part of God's plan. And you can only see that when you, you can only see what God's plan is when you decide to say, I am going to put my life in His hands. I am going to put my faith in God's plan. And there's something that happens to us. When we put our faith in God's plan, when we put our, our hope in the idea, in the certainty that God has a plan, He's up to something, and I can be a part of that. I am not beyond that. Everything in life gains a new perspective. So that begs the question for us this morning. If that's the plan, I want to know what the plan is. If, if God has a plan, what's the plan? And how can I be a part of that? I'd love to show you. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me in them or turn your Bibles on and go to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you need a Bible, just raise your hands. We'll distribute some hard copies to you. We've got some in some different translations than what I might be reading, but you're welcome to, to follow along. We're going to spend the next few weeks talking about God's plan and the hope that we can have when we put our lives into understanding what God's plan is for us, what God's plan is at all. Why we can have hope in God's plan. And as you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, let me give you just a little bit of a background. We read that in the first verse that uh, Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we all know who Peter is if we grew up in church. Peter, uh, well, he had a rough start. One of the first disciples to ever be called to be one of Jesus' inner circle. They called them the Twelve. And, well, when it came time for Jesus to, you know, give his life, Peter was nowhere to be found. And then Jesus comes back and Peter is fully restored and he becomes the head of the church. He kind of does really, really well, but he certainly fades into the background a little bit later as a guy named Paul comes onto the scene and he begins to go to all sorts of different towns. That doesn't mean that God is done with Peter. Peter has ended up in Rome, probably about 80, 60 or so, 65 or so. Things are getting a little tense in Rome where Jewish believers and Jewish people and Christians are being asked to leave. We're not at the um, uh, persecution done by Nero at this point in history, but things are getting tense. We're starting to build there. And Peter's writing to a group of churches, a group of people that are scattered to God's elect exiles scattered through the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia along a northern route through the upper uh, part of Turkey. Now, this particular area is known only because it wasn't the southern route. This is the other route. The southern route was where all the rich cities were. It was where all the rich commerce was. It was where the socialites went. It was where all the uh, military defenses were. It was where uh, there was commerce. There was industry. There was trade. There was uh, social activities. There was culture. It was, if you want to be somewhere, this is where you've got to be. 
Start spreading the news, we're leaving today. You go on the southern road to get there. The northern road was like Route 66. When the southern road came along, people stopped traveling Route 66. They stopped traveling the northern road and their importance started to fade away. People would go and they'd visit because it wasn't the areas of commerce, but they didn't stay there, they would leave. And commentators are split as to whether this is a a Jewish group that he's writing to. There's certainly uh, textual evidence that would say he's writing to Jewish Christians. He may have been writing to Gentile Christians. We're not quite sure. We're not sure if these are people who have been commanded by their emperor to go and spread Roman rule throughout these northern cities. They were already part of the Roman Empire, but you know how it is. Just because someone is in charge of something doesn't mean that everyone listens to them. And so the way that you um, begin to build a Roman society in those cities is you would take people from Rome and you would transplant them and you would move them and you would bring them in to run things, to come in and not take over, but to say this is a better way. This is a, you're a Roman now, so you do things this way. To kind of bring everybody in together, get everybody on the same page. And when you do that in a number of independent city-states that have functioned on their own for a long period of time, you can see how well they would have been received. And even Peter's own language says, I want you to know that you're God's elect. You're part of God's plan. You're not beyond God's plan, but... I know that you feel scattered. You see, they had gone into these towns and had started to try to develop a life, started to talk about Jesus, maybe started to talk about Rome, but clearly started to talk about Jesus. And people were saying, we don't need this. We don't want this. This is foolish talk. And you're foolish for believing it. And if you're going to teach this, if you're going to promote this, then we would be foolish to associate with you. And so this is the pressure that's now starting to build. We're starting to see this in the small towns, in these provinces that are all along the northern area of Turkey. It's a group that's been scattered, so they feel alone. They feel like they've been exiled, whether that's from an emperor's command or whether that's because they feel like they've been disconnected from God's plan. And they're experiencing ridicule, resentment, and pain because they are Christians. And I don't know about you, but It doesn't take long for a person who decides to follow Jesus Christ that all of a sudden life doesn't turn out the way that they expect it to. And they start to wonder, wait a minute. God, I thought you loved me. I thought you had a plan for me. I thought you were doing something in my life. I thought this was going to be better. I thought I was going to have a better life. What is going on? And those are the people that Peter is writing to, people like you and like me, who have often questioned and wrestled with the circumstances of our life and saying, God, where are you? I'm experiencing this ridicule. I'm experiencing this suffering. I'm experiencing this pain. Where am I? 
in light of all that you want to accomplish and do. And it's to those people that Peter writes and says, to you, God's elect, verse 2, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. And then he goes on and he says, do you know how much you're part of God's plan? You are so included in what God wants to do because you're being obedient to Jesus, because you're doing what God has asked you to do. You should give praise. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says, you're part of the plan. It's so simple. It's for everyone. Be obedient to Jesus. Just be obedient to Jesus. And if the circumstances become more difficult, that is not your responsibility. You just be obedient to Jesus because of what you have in Jesus. You should give thanks to God because of what Jesus has done. Who Jesus really is. And he calls him our living hope. What does that mean? When Peter calls Jesus our living hope, what he means is that Jesus is our hope for what we face today. Jesus is our hope for what we face today. Because Jesus is the proof of God's mercy. Now, when we think of hope normally, what do we think of? It's something that we hope will happen. It's something that we kind of desire that will happen. But with Jesus, it's something radically different. We're not hoping on something that's going to happen in the future. It's hoping on something that's already happened in the past. It's already been demonstrated. It's already been completed. It's already been fulfilled. Because Jesus died for you. And Jesus rose from the dead for you. And because of that, you have received mercy. You have received forgiveness. You have received freedom. And because Jesus is no longer dead, the greatest enemy that we could ever face, because He is alive today, we have a living hope. It means that hope isn't placed in the future of something we hope that will come soon, but it's a living actuality. It's based on an event that actually happened. That means... What that means is, is that today as you sit in this room, today as you watch online, God is for you. God is on your side. He doesn't want people to perish. He doesn't want people to be punished. He wants to rescue them. He wants to redeem them. He's being patient with as many people as possible in order to see as many people as possible come to a saving understanding of who Jesus is. That means that in this place, no matter what you've done with your life, no matter what you bring in, no matter what baggage you bring in, God looks at you and says, I'm on your side. 
I am on your side in this moment, right now, today. And that is a guarantee. You know what a guarantee is, right? Well, we hear the word guarantee and we go, well, that's great, but I don't know. I've heard that I've been guaranteed things before. I bought some products and I went and they didn't work the way I wanted to and I tried to, you know, take the salesman up on the guarantee and they got out of it. I don't know if I can trust this guarantee. Let me explain it to you in a different way, one that makes absolute sense. I have heard that in in some families, uh, certainly not ours, not in the family that I was growing up in, and probably not yours as well, but other people's families, I have heard that sometimes the kids get a little out of control. Sometimes kids get a little, you know, maybe a little disrespectful, disobedient, don't do what the rules are. Maybe they're told not to run in the house, they run in the house and they break the lamp. And maybe mom or dad starts to punish them and the kids kind of like yeah whatever it doesn't you know you can't they just don't take it seriously until one of them says until the, the parent says who witnessed the whole thing you just wait until your father comes home now, I know that, that, that doesn't happen in your family. It didn't ha- that never, it's never happened in my family growing up. And, you know, it's probably not happened in yours. Or maybe, you know, you've heard of other people saying, you wait till your mother gets home. At that point as a child, you know you have a, a bit of a break, a bit of a time. Where things seem normal, where things seem like nothing's going to happen to you, where there's going to be no consequences. But then all of a sudden, mom or dad arrives home, and that is guaranteed to have consequences, right? That's when they say it. Now, I know you don't know this. I know you didn't grow up in this environment. I know this is just what other people have told you. This is other families. But that's what a guarantee is. And what Peter is saying to them, what Peter is saying to us, is that you wait till God gets here. It's a guarantee that He is for you, He is on your side, He is working on your behalf, He is sanctifying you, all because of Jesus. And that means that hope, it's not a, I hope my team wins the championship this season, or I hope I get a raise. Biblical hope is not a hope so but a know-so. I don't hope so. I know so. That God is in this, God has a plan, and God is on my side. Jesus is my proof. It's not wishing for the best. It's knowing that when you're obeying Jesus, you have His best. It's not a feeling or an emotion. It's a knowledge of the facts. It's a knowledge that if God would do this for me when I was a sinner, when I was, a, when I was defiant against Him, when I had no hope, and Jesus would still come, and Jesus would still take my sin on His shoulders, and He would die for me, and that God would raise Him from the dead, what won't He do for me for the development of my Christ-likeness? I can trust Him, even when the plan doesn't look like it's what I want. When I'm obeying Jesus, I can know that I'm in the right place. Because God has a plan, God is for me, and Jesus is our hope, our living hope, for what we face today. But, 
that can still be hard to actually be something that motivates you, that excites you, that challenges you, that becomes a basis for who you are. So Peter doesn't stop there. He continues and says, and this has a benefit of what's to come. This helps you today because of what is going to come. Jesus just isn't your living hope for what you face today. Jesus is your living hope for all eternity. He says, he continues on, that in Jesus you have been given, you have been put into an inheritance, verse 4, that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. For those who are obedient to Jesus in this life today, there is an inheritance that awaits them for all eternity that will never, ever end. When my father died, he died a a few years ago, He left uh, some financial resources. He left a small financial estate that we divided up amongst the kids. And he, those resources were divided to us within about a month or so. And I kind of thought that was it, that that was the estate. But my sister, who was the executor of the will, kept phoning and saying, hey, did you know dad owned this? He owned a, a tractor no idea my dad owned a tractor. I knew he owned a truck, and I, you know, I didn't know anything more than that. Now, yeah, I owned a tractor, and it turns out it's worth this, and so we sold it. Here's your portion. Well, okay, great. And then a couple of weeks later, a month later, hey, you know dad had these tools? Yeah, I you know dad had the tools. Well, it turns out that, you know, they were worth this, and so we sold them for this, and now they have this much. Here's your portion. And it kept going and going and going like that for almost six months. Here's a little bit more. 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 And that's what it's like with Jesus. That's what it's like with the inheritance that he provides. Except the little bit more is everlasting. Here's a little bit more, here's a little bit more, here's a little bit more, here's a little bit more. And we never see the end of it. It never runs out. We never end enjoying it. We always have it with us. And it just seems to always satisfy more and more and more. So our living hope is not in our present circumstances. Our living hope is in what awaits us for those who are being called to obey those who are being called to obey Jesus. And that's kind of the way you raise your kids, right? I mean, maybe you grew up in a home where there was dessert after, after dinner, but it was reserved for those who cleaned their plates. Even the vegetables that, well, you didn't think tasted very good. If you cleaned your plate, then there was dessert. And that principle's true in heaven. That principle's true in Christianity and your spirituality that the reward for obeying is not always immediate, but there is always a reward for obedience. And Jesus, the one who will never die, 
is looking after that reward. Because we've obeyed him, he is the one who is going to dispense with those, with that inheritance for us. And it's going to be better than we could possibly ask or even imagine. And that's why Peter says, look, you have to understand a little bit of perspective. He says, you're going to have a little grief for a little time, right? He says, look at verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. Although now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, greater worth than gold, which perishes, gold perishes even though refined by fire, so that the genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's praise for you. That's glory to you. That's honor to you because you saw what was coming and said, that's worthwhile, that's worth investing in. I'm going to do that because I know it will pay off. Can you imagine what that will look like at the end of days? Can you imagine what it will look like when Jesus says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. When Jesus recognizes you, that is what Peter is saying here. Don't lose, don't lose sight of that because that is what gives you hope, that reality that Jesus, because he's alive, is going to honor you in all of eternity even as we worship and honor him and direct that back to him. And he says, this is what it looks like. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what Jesus, our living hope, does for us and the way that plays out for us is that we get some perspective of our pain. And anything that we're facing, we can begin to realize that, hey, God has a plan for this. That God's going to do something with this. That he's, this is not beyond him. This is not surprising him. This is not uh, something that's shocking him going, oh no, wait, Brian's now facing this. I didn't plan for that. God is in that pain and he has a plan for that pain that's going to produce something in me. He gives us perspective on what we're facing, that this is temporary, that this is just a little thing for a little time and it pales in comparison to what is coming. And he tells us that there's purpose for our pain. That I'm going to use these things to help continue to save you as you choose to be obedient, as you choose to follow me. Jesus is our hope for what we face today. Jesus is our hope for all of eternity. He is our living hope, both now and forever. So how do we put our faith, how do we put our hope in Him as that living hope? There was a book uh, that... um, was written called Christians in the Age of Outrage. How to bring our best when the world is at its worst. It's written by Ed Stetzer, who's on staff at uh, Moody Bible College in their missiology and culture program. And he wrote this book, kind of alarmed at the fact about how people were acting online specifically, but also how they were reacting to people who disagreed with them. 
And this is what he wrote. One of the cures for how to not act outraged, ridicule others, is that we need to forge a gospel-shaped worldview. And I want to take that statement and just help you understand it in the context that we've been talking about it. This is talking about how to have a Jesus-forged worldview, a Jesus as our living hope worldview, that the gospel is everything, and it shapes the way we view our circumstances. And this is what he wrote. Effectively engaging the age of outrage requires that we recognize that each of us has a worldview that is shaped and influenced by what we consume. For that reason, we must consider how what we consume disciples us for godliness or for sin. What we consume. What feeds us. How we spend our time disciples us. And it disciples us either towards godliness or towards sin. There is no third option. And so his recommendation is to consume things that would disciple you towards godliness, to build this kind of a living hope. Things like the classic spiritual disciplines like study of scripture, prayer, and fasting. And allow those things to shape your worldview. Get more into the Bible than more into Fox News and CNN. That's what he's saying. Get more in prayer with God than online with others. Just watch what you're consuming. And be disciplining yourself in order to consume what will disciple you towards godliness. He also suggests alongside spiritual disciplines that you can use spiritual teaching. And learn from voices of wisdom and discernment. So that you can be wise and discerning about your circumstances, about what you're facing. That's why you come Sunday mornings, why you come and you sing and you hear God's word. In today's age, there's real, it's really difficult to miss out on what your church is teaching. Because it's all online. We offer everything online. You can get great teaching online. You can get great devotional books. You can get great audio cassettes or cassettes. Wow, did I date myself? Uh, You can get audio uh, recordings. You can go to podcasts. You can just get training and listen. And and you can go to conferences. There There is an overwhelming amount that you can consume that will move you towards godliness. And that's a thing that you can discipline yourself to use. Because if you've ever been so overwhelmed by your circumstances or what seems to be happening in the world and it bothers you so much, then you may have placed your hope in something else, something that is substandard to the hope that Jesus offers you. A hope that is alive. A hope that's based on what you are doing or what others are doing, but on what He has done. And the reality that Jesus is alive changes everything about today and for all of eternity. Your best hope is to build your life On the living hope. And so over the next few weeks, we are going to look at what it means to build our lives on the living hope 
that is Jesus. And we're going to celebrate and we're going to sing and we are going to, my prayer is that we are going to grow, to be confident. In the same way that we are confident and know that there are certain things in life that happen. That we can become so confident that no matter what happens to us, God has a plan and he's working that plan and it's centered around the living hope, Jesus Christ. Just recently, there were a number of uh, devastating um, hurricanes, tornadoes that came in and and, uh, flattened uh, some areas of Nashville, Tennessee. And we saw pictures on the news of the devastating things that happened. And I've noticed a trend that has happened in places like this where there's been natural disasters, where there's been uh, things that have happened. People start to rally online and they start to say as they're interviewed on the news and so on that, well, you know, we live in a great community. We're a strong people. We're Nashville strong, right? You've heard that before. And then I put a hashtag together and sell some t-shirts for fundraising to help people in need. And You've seen that in other disasters that have happened. You may remember Boston Strong uh, from a long time ago. And, and, and those kinds of things have always come up. For the church, we're Jesus Strong. We don't have to be. Because He is. He's our hope. And he is so much better than putting our hope in a region of people, a limited geographical location, in a limited circumstance. Everything we need has been accomplished by him. Let's be Jesus strong. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who has given us Jesus In your great mercy, we have been given a living hope demonstrated through Christ's resurrection from the dead. The inheritance that has been placed in us, that's being watched for us, that's being developed for us, all because of Jesus, all through Jesus. Lord, would you help us to build our hope, to have a living hope on the one who is our living hope. Would you help us to be Jesus strong? Would you help us to praise you for him and all that he has done and all that he is doing? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.